Welcome to the Quantum Wire, news and information from the frontiers of the quantum information science revolution. We're coming to you from the Joint Quantum Institute, a research partnership of the University of Maryland and National Institute of Standards and Technology. I'm Kurt Suplee. And I'm Steve Ralston. And we're going to be talking to you today. Uh, This is our first broadcast, and so we're going to be establishing some of the terms and concepts that you'll be interested in knowing uh, as the weeks go by and we do more of these things. I guess the best place to start would be what is quantum information? What is quantum information? Well, quantum mechanics, which you may have heard of, is the microscopic theory of how things work. Um, So it really describes atoms at their individual level, molecules, interactions of atoms with light. And quantum mechanics is actually a really a theory about our knowledge of nature. It's not so much a theory about nature itself, but about what we know about nature. And because it's a theory of knowledge, then that intersects with another revolution in science uh, of the 20th century, which is known as information science, which is really a field that tries to understand what information is and how it can be used. The individual unit of uh, our ordinary desktop computers is what you call a bit, a binary digit. Uh, Quantum information has a also has an irreducibly small unit, but it's called something different, right? Yeah, it's a qubit, or that, which is short for a quantum bit. And what's different about a qubit and a regular bit is a regular bit can, say, either be 0 or 1, whereas a qubit can be both 0 and 1 at the same time, which sounds pretty strange, but that's one of the weird features of quantum mechanics. This is a a signature of what we call the principle of superposition. Well, superposition meaning both the zero and the one at the same time kind of piled on top of each other in some way uh, with a certain – how does it work? Probability of each of them occurring? That's right. So remember I said before that quantum mechanics is a theory about information. So when I say something is both zero and one at the same time, I'm really saying our knowledge of it is – such that it can be both zero and one at the same time. And if I actually go to measure it, I will find out it's either zero or either one, and the probability of getting a zero or a one is built into what that actual superposition state is. Well, it also sounds so kind of indeterminate that it's difficult to imagine that you could use this for information at all. Explain that a little bit. Well, it is indeterminate, and that's one of the features of quantum mechanics. This is one of the things that drove Einstein nuts about quantum mechanics. He famously said that God does not play with dice or some quote along those lines. And uh, this idea that quantum mechanics and quantum information is really a theory about probabilities is very disturbing to a lot of people, including a lot of us physicists. Um, But it is the uh, one of the underlying tenets that when we describe a system, we're really describing a probability of outcomes. So the the, the little unit, the, the smallest unit of uh, quantum information then is in this delicate state of superposition, which gives you some kind of random uh, value when you measure it out. How do you keep it in this state of superposition? That's not a, exactly the easiest thing to do, right? No, that's really hard to do, and that's really what makes quantum information different than regular information. 
or classical information. So these superpositions are extremely delicate, and in fact, that's why you don't notice quantum mechanics during your everyday life, because most things aren't in superpositions. So whenever a, say, I take a qubit, I create it somehow or other in this superposition state, if it interacts in any way with its environment for the rest of the world, it's kind of like doing a measurement. And if you remember, I said when I measure a qubit, it's either zero or one. So that's what we'll call decohering. And we'll be talking about that more as in future podcasts, I'm sure. So the whole challenge or one of the challenges to doing quantum information science is figuring out how to protect these delicate little qubits and keeping their superpositions Alive. So it not only has to be physically protected, but it has to be set up so that no one can observe it, right? Or, or no system can observe it. Absolutely. If, if I can observe it, that's doing a measurement and I'm going to decohere it. Um, in fact, as we'll be talking in future podcasts, one of the potential applications of uh, quantum information science is a quantum computer and classical computers – do something called error correction because occasionally your computer makes a mistake. And so we go back to that information science, information theory, and there are tools you use to correct for those mistakes. And when people first started thinking about quantum information and quantum computers, they said, well, I can't ever look at a quantum state. So there are some of the original thoughts where this was totally impractical because the rules of quantum mechanics say if I look at something, then I'm going to perturb it and destroy the superposition. And as it's turned out, we figured out ways around that, which isn't for this broadcast, but we may talk about in the future, a field called quantum error correction. So to sum up, to, to get yourself quantum information, you store it in a qubit, which is different from a regular bit. And it is in a, unless it is observed with, by something or uh, interacts with its environment, it is in a superposition of states. Now, what physically holds that quantum information? What's the, I mean, in a, in a normal computer, it's these uh, semiconductor channels and so on and so forth. What, what is it in a, in a quantum system? Well, there are lots of different qubits that people have been thinking about and experimenting with. Um, typically, they're some very small thing like an individual atom or maybe an individual ion, or it could be a individual atom trapped in a uh, solid crystal of some sort, or it could even be a single particle of light, what we call a photon. And then the qubit is some property of that atom or photon. So for instance, with atoms, lots of atoms uh, have little magnetic moments. So you can just think of them as little bar magnets. We'll, talk, we'll call that their spin. And depending on whether the spin is pointing up or down is our zero or one of our qubit. But now in this case, the spin could be in a coherent superposition of being up and down at the same time. Now we hold those so we need these individual qubits, say an atom, and this is one of the challenges. We want it not to interact with its environment, but yet we better hang on to it or it's going to interact with the environment. So typically we'll do that uh, with a number of different techniques, either electric fields, magnetic fields, or whatever. Well, just to, to give to give one example, let's say you're talking about... Uh, 
an ion. Now, an ion is an atom that has lost one or more of its electrons and therefore has a positive charge. So presumably you can hold those guys with a with an electric field. What would a what would a trap that holds such an atom or an ion look like? So such a trap, you're right, it uses electric fields. And by that, I mean, we just connect a couple of pieces of metal to a battery and put the ion in between there. Of course, if I tried to do that in the room where we're sitting here, there are there would be tons of collisions between that ion and all the gas molecules, the air molecules bouncing around. So we can't do that. So what we have to do is put the ion in a vacuum container. So what we do is we take a very high-tech stainless steel container and we pump it out so that there's practically no gas molecules left. And so it's sitting there suspended due to the electric fields in the middle of this uh, vacuum. I've heard that the vacuums in there are even better or uh, more rarefied than they are up where the shuttle astronauts are working. Absolutely. They're they're much better than uh, what you get in near-Earth orbit. Um, so our vacuums are basically 14 orders of magnitude below atmospheric pressure. So that's a hundred trillion times fewer molecules floating around than what we're breathing at the moment. That's pretty low. And the temperatures are outrageously cold, right? As I understand it, the temperatures in, in interstellar space, where it's completely empty in between stars for light years at a time, is around three degrees Kelvin. Kelvin being the degree size, the same size as a, as a Celsius degree, but on the uh, absolute scale. So let's say it's 3K in between two distant stars. How cold is it in this trap? So depending on the system, it can be as cold as nano-Kelvin. So that's a billionth of a degree Kelvin above absolute zero. And just to remind you, 300 Kelvin is room temperature. We have to have it that cold because we want our qubits in a particular quantum state. And if they're hot, then they have the potential to be in lots of different states at the same time, not controlled. So we want them to be in a single specific superposition state, and that requires them being as cold as we can possibly get them. Okay, so suppose we, we've achieved this uh, superhuman task of, of trapping uh, a qubit. Now, in an ordinary computer, I've when I trap a bit, either as a zero or one in a capacitor in, in my uh, semiconductor, uh, I then need to, to perform some operation on it in order to make it information processing. I have to take the zero or one. I have to send it through some kind of mechanism that either flips it or doubles it or moves it here or moves it there. If quantum information by definition can't be touched or it will lose its uh, quintessential superposition, how do you move it around? So this is really one of the grand challenges of working with quantum information. We have these competing demands. On the one hand, we don't want to touch it. And on the other hand, we want to control it. So we have to have, we have to be able to touch it. But we have to do it in a very controlled fashion. And so that means interacting with it with some sort of field that has the same kinds of coherence properties as the atom itself. And typically what we use is lasers to do that. Speaking of bright lights, let's bring in Carl Williams. Carl is the other uh, co-director of the Joint Quantum Institute, along with Steve Ralston, and also serves as the division chief of the Atomic Physics Division at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Hello, Carl. Hello. 
So tell us a little bit about how quantum information science might actually be employed if it finds its way into uh, practical devices. So probably the uh, most uh, famous uh, viewpoint about using quantum information is basically the idea of building a quantum computer that would be able to factor uh, large composite numbers, uh, and that's a very key problem to uh, uh, cryptography. Uh, anybody who goes to an HTTPS website, uh, this is how, what allows them to securely communicate with that website. So what do factoring large numbers have to do with my credit card information? Well, um, basically, uh, the, uh, factorization is believed to be a hard problem. I mean, if I ask you what the factors of 15 are, you would tell me 3 and 5. But if I get you up to a number like 91, you're going to sit there and think a few minutes, and eventually you will come back and tell me that it's 13 times 7. Uh, if I give you a 128-digit number to factor, uh, it's going to take you a little while. And the way we do this uh, effectively mathematically or computationally today is we just go through all the possibilities, and that scales basically uh, as a so-called exponential of the number of digits in the number. So uh, to factor a, a very long uh, number takes uh, a computer a long time. Um, with a quantum computer, you can actually do this uh, uh, basically in a polynomial, actually in n cubed, uh, where n is, again, the number of digits. Carl, you're an employee of NIST, and NIST is one of the members of our Joint Quantum Institute. So just why does NIST care about quantum information? So uh, NIST cares about quantum information largely because of its role in measurement science. Um, we know that there are some things one can do uh, by creating exotic quantum states uh, that will allow us to make measurements better than uh, what you can do uh, classically. That is, we can beat the so-called standard quantum limit. So that's one thing to keep in mind. One of the consequences of quantum mechanics is that it actually tells us just how well we can actually measure something, something called the so-called standard quantum limit. But there are tricks around that. What would be an example of that? So uh, probably the, uh, the one where we first looked at this was basically on trying to measure time more accurately, or that is to make our, our measurement of the second much more accurate. So beyond factorization of primes, what other uses might there be? Well, there are a number of other things. Uh, one believes that one could basically solve uh, a lot of quantum problems more accurately, including simulating uh, so-called uh, problems relevant to uh, condensed matter physics, but also perhaps drug design and uh, other problems uh, that actually have much more social implications. Drug design? How, how would that work in drug design? You've got to remember, Kurt, that a molecule is a big, complicated thing. We generally know what molecules are made of, which particular atoms compose them. It may be hundreds or thousands in some big, complicated protein. What's hard to predict is the actual shape the molecule will take. And quite often, the shape of the molecule is quite important in determining its function. And figuring out that shape is actually a quantum mechanical problem. So, and those kind of problems uh, uh, have very important implications. So, uh, a drug docking to a cell can determine whether it can be effective in treating cancer and other kinds of problems. So, if we can build a quantum computer that can tell us what kind of shape the molecule has, it might be quite uh, important for figuring out its function. So, where on the timeline from we just figured this out to we're about to build a completely practical working device. Where are we on that timeline? 
Well, I'd say we're at the very rudimentary stage. So uh, today, uh, if you will look at the m most sophisticated experiments, uh, we've been dealing with not more than six or eight qubits, uh, a qubit being uh, the bit of information. Uh, so this is like having a useless classical computer. I mean, eight bits is, 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 is basically a single letter. Um, and so we're at the very primitive stage, and it'll probably be a long time before uh, we develop something practical. Certainly, if you want to think about a full-blown quantum computer that's capable of cracking the encryption that my credit card uses, we're a long way away from that. That's probably thousands or tens of thousands of qubits. So that's quite the grand challenge, but there's certainly going to be a lot of interesting science going on along the way to that goal. So it's sort of like where we were in 1947 when the, the transistor had been invented, but the uh, integrated circuit was still in the future? That is actually an apt analogy. We really are at the beginning. And if you think back to the so-called information revolution of the 20th century, that was basically constructed on the transistor, which goes into those integrated circuits that goes into the computer that we all use. And that transistor, its properties were determined by quantum mechanics. But it was determined by some of the properties of quantum mechanics that aren't so strange. And so what we're dreaming about now is the second quantum revolution, where we use some of those weird properties of quantum mechanics, like that principle of superposition we mentioned, or something called entanglement we'll be talking about in future episodes, to create new devices, maybe things we haven't even imagined yet, that are based on these weird properties of quantum mechanics. And... Uh... This second quantum revolution uh, that will use the strange property of quantum mechanics probably will bring things to us that we uh, have not yet even dreamt of. Uh, there's a whole lot of possibilities that quantum mechanics physically allows that we do not fully uh, comprehend. So we understand complex classical systems, but complex quantum systems, ones made up hundreds or thousands or millions of qubits, uh, we don't really understand all the possibilities. And that is a broad scientific question, but it also opens up uh, the future possibilities of undrept of technology uh, for the future. All right. Uh, having arrived at the doorsteps of the future, that's probably a good place to stop. Thanks for listening. We hope you'll be with us next time when we talk about quantum mechanics and random numbers and a truly eerie uh, set of events called ultra-cold chemistry. Meanwhile, if you'd like to stop by the website, it's jqi.umd.edu. There's a lot of multimedia stuff there and a lot of things to catch you up on what's going on in the world of uh, quantum information science. And while you're there, you might want to have a look at the uh, Physics Frontier Center supported by the National Science Foundation. That website is at pfc.umd.edu. So for Steve, Carl, and the rest of the JQI fellows, thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time.